Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about some of the key news stories affecting primary care from the past two weeks. Coming up, we're discussing the stock take of primary care that has just been carried out on behalf of NHS England by GP Dr Claire Fuller. We'll be looking at what it had to say and what it could mean for general practice in the future. We're also talking about the general practice workforce figures and the government's ongoing attempts to misrepresent the data. And we'll be looking at what GPs really think about primary care networks and discussing some very real concerns about the future of the partnership model of general practice. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, last week saw the publication of Dr Claire Fuller's stock take of primary care, which is a 38-page report looking at the next steps for integrating primary care in England. Nick, what exactly is this stock take and why is it, or even is it, important? So the big idea in this report is to set out the next phase of the evolution of primary care networks. Um, and its author, as you mentioned, is Dr. Claire Fuller. She's a GP and she'll be uh, the chief executive of one of the country's 42 integrated care systems, ICSs, as they get fully off the ground later this year. And she makes the case in this report that the next step for PCNs is to go further in bringing together all primary care services across local areas, and in fact, not just primary care services. So her report talks about the need to create teams of teams at neighbourhood level. Neighbourhood level means the populations of 30 to 50,000 patients that uh, PCNs were originally intended to cover. And, and it says that this is the vision going forward for primary, primary care networks, that they should evolve into what are described as integrated neighbourhood teams. There's an element of back to basics about this in that PCNs were always meant to bring together what are sometimes quite disconnected strands of uh, NHS primary and community care, as well as um, elements of hospital and other services and bring those together in a more coherent way and, and, and promote collaboration. This report's setting out as much as anything how PCNs fit into the way integrated care systems, ICSs, will work. And it's worth mentioning that as well as being authored by Dr Fuller, who, as we've said, is a, an ICS boss herself, a letter supporting the report that she has written has been signed by every ICS leader in England. So it has significant weight as the shared vision of all of these NHS, um, these senior NHS figures. Going into a bit more detail, the report sets out some of the goals for this way of working. It talks about improved access to care and uh, advice for people who don't use health services all that often with more choice about how to access care. Um, Dr Fuller talks about more proactive and personalised care for people with complex needs uh, and about a, a more ambitious and joined up approach to preventive care. And there are also a couple of key points around enabling this and sort of practical elements that people leading PCNs may, may welcome. I mean, first off, there's a call for better back office support for primary care networks. So we're talking about access to functions like um, human resources support, HR support, help with uh, organisational development and how to use data and analytics and management of finances. And the thinking here, as I understand it, is that if NHS hospitals were trying to deliver a massive change, such as integrating 26,000 new staff in the way that the additional roles reimbursement scheme is supposed to do through PCNs, that they'd be able to call on this type of backup. So this is recognition, ultimately, that primary care general practice needs similar support to integrate this huge cohort of, uh, of new people. 
And then secondly, there's also an acknowledgement of the need for an improved premises strategy and problems with premises, lack of space. Again, uh, something that GPs have often said is undermining the additional roles reimbursement scheme. And in areas that have been able to recruit, they simply don't have room to place these new staff into surgeries. So I felt the document was like very aspirational. It was all about sort of what could be achieved if all parts of the system pulled together and headed off in exactly the same direction with the same destination in mind. You know, even in the conclusion of the report, Dr. Fuller says that very little of what's outlined in it is easy to deliver. So, I mean, to me, it seems that it's going to take massive commitment from ICS leaders as well as those on the ground to actually sort of realise this vision of integrating care. I mean, Dr. Fuller says that the three things that are key to this will be workforce, estates and data. I mean, you touched on premises there and we all know that they're actually a massive problem. And clearly it will inevitably have an impact on how well services can integrate if there's no room in any buildings to co-locate teams so that they can kind of work effectively together. Um, The report highlighted that 22% of the primary care estate in England predates 1948, which is quite shocking. And 2,000 of the 8,911 premises that make up the primary care estate have been deemed not fit for purpose by GPs. So sorting that out in itself, just the premises side of it, is a bit of a mountain to climb. you know, Dr. Fuller says that capital investment for building projects, which has always up until now really focused on secondary care, needs to start to move into primary care. You know, she's got loads of recommendations about what ICSs should do to think creatively about how to use the estate they've got and make use of partners such as hospitals and uh, local authorities and how they can better co-locate services. But the report also really stresses that the Department of Health and Social Care and NHS England will really need to, to step up. I mean, she talks about the Department of Health making the primary care estate central to the next health infrastructure plan. But I mean, it really does remain to be seen whether the government is really to take that leap and potentially prioritise primary care premises over shiny new hospital developments. You know, past track record, not very good on that front. I think the other thing that I sort of struck me was she did also talk about something which I thought was a bit radical was about redistribution of funding. So she says that it's generally accepted that the distribution of funding in primary care does not match underlying population need. And we've talked before about how the GP funding formula specifically doesn't necessarily work very well for areas of deprivation. So what the report sort of starts to talking about is sort of steps that could be taken to fix this with ICSs potentially being better able to understand how funding could be distributed to areas that needed more money, in a sense, to um, tackle health inequalities. You know, so that I thought that was quite interesting. But again, you know, that is another big leap to make. So Sajid Javid has obviously welcomed the report and said all the recommendations will improve patients' access to services, including those with the most complex needs, and help people live well for longer. But I suppose for the purpose of this podcast, the real question is, you know, what difference will it all make to general practice? Yeah, I mean, in terms of what it means, uh, you know, there could be some positives. If, if PCNs get more help with those back office uh, functions and, and perhaps the NHS begins to give a bit more thought to primary care premises, for example, those those could be good things. But I, I think what stands out as well is that it feels like there's a disconnect between um, some of the elements of the report and the rhetoric that comes from the government at times. I, the report acknowledges massive pressure on the health service overall and on general practice, and it recognises that more staff are needed. And that's obviously something the government's finding very difficult to deliver, as we'll come on to a bit later. But as well as staff, the report's sort of saying that, you know, access can be improved by making the health system less fragmented. And it says that in every area, there should be a single urgent care team that offers their patients the care appropriate to them when they pop into their practice, contact the team or book an online appointment. 
And that line about giving patients the care appropriate to them is very different from the message that ministers right up to Sajid Javid at the top of the health department have been spreading. Um, I mean, they've been telling the public that they should be able to see a GP face to face if that is what they want and not if that is what is appropriate. So it seems to me there's a danger here that just as, for example, NHS England told GPs to shift to predominantly remote consultations at the start of the pandemic and then went on to criticise them for not seeing enough people face to face or supposedly not seeing enough people face to face. We're now in a situation where this report is promising better access, but suggesting that that could be delivered not only by GPs, but also by others while the government continues to tell the public via other channels that they should be able to see a GP whenever they want. So if this is the direction of travel, GPs need some guarantees that the government's not going to promise one thing to the public and then tell general practice to deliver something different. Next up, regular listeners to the podcast will have heard us talk about GP workforce data on previous episodes. The data is now produced every month by NHS Digital. We'll come on to what the latest set of data tells us about the state of the workforce in a minute. But first, I think it's worth looking at what the government likes to tell us about the figures. Nick, people listening to this might be a bit surprised to hear that we regularly get emails from the Department of Health and Social Care telling us about record numbers of doctors and nurses currently working in the NHS, because I'm fairly sure that doesn't really reflect the reality that most people feel on the ground. You recently looked at some of the claims the government has made about the NHS workforce in primary care and how this stacks up against the reality. What did you find? So we've been banging on for a while about how the the government and NHS England keep suggesting that the GP workforce is rising uh, when actually it's falling. And uh, official data on the GP workforce uh, in England from NHS Digital show that the health service lost around 700 full-time equivalent fully qualified GPs in the three years to March 2022. But the government said last week that the number of doctors in general practice was up by 1,400 over that period. So why the difference? Um, I mean, the the government likes to use this phrase, doctors in general practice. It pointedly doesn't claim that the number of GPs has gone up because it hasn't. And um, the, the figure quoted by the government shows an increase because it counts trainees who are technically doctors working in general practice, but they're not yet GPs and they can't practice independently in general practice. Perhaps more importantly, or certainly as part of this story, there's no guarantee that they will ever work in the UK once they qualify. Obviously, a large number of those GP trainees will work in UK general practice. Of course they will. But the RCGP and others have raised concerns that the government isn't doing enough to make it easy for large numbers of GP trainees who are international medical graduates to remain in the UK once they qualify. So we've spoken before as well about the polling that the BMA has done that suggests one in eight GP trainees don't intend to work in UK general practice. So counting those numbers in the way the government chooses to is, as the BMA has said, misleading. And Then over the past month, we've also seen what you might call this sort of creative accounting applied to numbers of people recruited through the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme, the ARRS. So the government promised 26,000 new staff through the scheme by 2024 to support primary care. And it says, uh, or it said this month, it's on track to deliver that. But other people say it really isn't. So 
The government claimed the other week that there were over 18,200 more people working in general practice. We've got that phrase again, people working in general practice, I suppose, rather than people recruited through the ARRS. Anyway, but there were over 18,200 more people working in general practice in March 2022 compared to March 2019, and suggesting that it was well on the way, therefore, to this 26,000 target. But you only get to that figure of 18,200 if you count up ARRS staff and then you add some others that are nothing to do with that scheme. So the the total quoted by the government includes nearly 1,500 staff that are not in roles covered by the additional roles reimbursement scheme. Um, And then a whole load more on top of that who are in roles that are covered by the ARRS, but were brought in independently of it. So probably recruited directly by practices and and therefore shouldn't count towards that total of 26,000. I mean, this is people basically not brought in through that scheme and the funding for it, but people recruited directly by practices themselves out of their own core funding. So again, there seems to be a bit of spin going on here and we'll we'll keep on doing our best to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. It's quite important to have the right figures. So, you know, um, you know, the reason they're measuring it is so that they've got the figures so they know where they're aiming for uh, and where they're at and not actually painting a true picture of it means that nobody really knows where we've got to, how we've got to get to where we need to go, like that extra 6,000 GPs. In terms of the, the figures, the latest set that's come out, what's that got to tell us about how things are going with recruiting these extra 6,000 GPs? I'm assuming not very well. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, so the, the latest figures show that the, the GP workforce, and we're talking about genuine GP numbers here, uh, full-time <laughs> equivalent, fully qualified ones, dropped again in April. There are now 27,743 full-time equivalent, fully qualified GPs, and that's down 26 from the previous month. So it's not a not a huge change, but it's still, it's that trajectory that's that's going down. The BMA described the trend we're seeing as a steady and sustained decline. Um, and it's warned politicians that basically you know, time is, is running out to get this turned around. The uh, the, the workforce figures uh, come out monthly and, and they come out at the same time generally as the uh, appointments uh, statistics from NHS Digital. Um, and, and those figures showed that practices delivered around 24 million appointments in April. So workloads really, really high still. Uh, and around two thirds of those appointments were face to face. There's another factor that's worth mentioning here too around pensions. And um, these are some figures that we've we've reported on this week around numbers of people claiming their pensions. So this is just to be clear, this is all NHS staff or NHS pension scheme members, I suppose. Uh, and the number of people claiming their NHS pension for the first time in April 2022 was the highest figure recorded in any single month on record. And that, that suggests that more doctors and nurses are retiring from the NHS workforce than ever before. So the figure for this April was 28% up on the same month last year. Uh, and it also includes a record number of early retirements. So that's people claiming their pension before standard retirement age. What's alarming about that is that these figures come at a time when inflation is expected to drive a real surge in numbers of GPs facing pension tax penalties. So that could deliver yet another spike in retirement. So these are these are not great signs for the workforce at a time when it's already sort of uh, seeing it as, as a BMA described in, in, in a sort of sustained decline. You mentioned earlier about the workforce aspect of the of the fuller stock take that we were talking about at the start of the, the podcast. I mean, and she also does point out that workforce is obviously one of the key things that needs to be addressed to deliver this vision for integrated care. Um, and one of the things she points out is that the national workforce strategy, which is apparently 
coming imminently and, and has been supposedly coming imminently for quite a long time now, needs to focus on primary care and sort of identify the skills and roles required to deliver this kind of integrated teams that she's talking about. Obviously, much like the premises, there really is kind of quite a mountain to climb to address these problems with the number of GPs we've got and the number of other staff that are coming into general practice, particularly as we've talked about many times in the podcast, if more are leaving from the top. I think another thing to mention would be, you know, fingers crossed that report comes out and says that the staff that we need to create the, the multidisciplinary teams that, uh, that, that are suitable for general practice are the ones that we've recruited through the ARRS. Moving on, this week we published the results of a survey we conducted about what GPs think about primary care networks and how they're impacting on practices. The survey of 233 GPs in England found that just 45% thought that being part of a network had benefited practices in the area they worked overall. GPs responding to the survey were particularly concerned that PCNs were adding to practice workload. 77% said they thought that being part of a network had created additional work for practices, and only 2% of GPs didn't think being part of a network had created additional work. GPs were also sceptical about whether practices will see any financial benefit from being part of a network, with just 29% saying they thought that would be the case. In particular, GPs raised some real concerns about the enhanced access requirements of this year's DES. If you remember, that means that from October, PCNs will have to operate network standard hours, which means they have to provide additional appointments and that somewhere in the network has to be open from 8 to 8, Monday to Friday, and from 9 to 5 on a Saturday. You know, the actual amount of appointments they need to provide will depend on the number of patients they cover. But GPs responding to the poll said that they were concerned the money provided for this was insufficient and also that they just did not have the staff to cover the extra time they would need to be open. The ARRS, which we've talked about quite a bit today, was also mentioned. You know, This is obviously the biggest tranche of funding going into networks. But while many GPs welcome the staff that it is recruiting, they highlighted that the training and supervision requirements were taking up loads of GP time, particularly in the first two years. And that was also adding to GP workload. And some of them also really questioned how much these additional staff would really help to alleviate current workload as new requirements are constantly being added to what networks are being asked to do every year. And finally, um, a few people raised some concerns about what networks mean for the current partnership model. A lot of people were worried that all this new money going into networks rather than the core GP contract meant that practices were required to do lots of new work to access the money and didn't necessarily get much of a say about which news roles they were recruiting. So, in fact, Nick, these results come as the BMA has also warned that PCNs represent an existential threat to the independent contractor model. Now, obviously, PCNs are only in existence because of the five-year contract agreement that the BMA signed up to in 2019. So what's going on here? This follows on from the LMC's conference earlier this month, which we've um, we've talked about on a previous episode of the podcast. Um, and at that event, there was um, a lot of concern that surfaced around GP partners or independent contractors feeling unsupported. And, uh, you know, a number of reasons for this. The, the Health and Social Care Secretary, Sajid Javid, has suggested that he thinks general practice could be nationalised, turned into a salaried service and with practices working within hospital trusts. So that's a very real concern for GPs at the moment. And it's also against a backdrop of an imposed GP contract for 2022-23, which has brought uh, concern that the BMA isn't doing enough to stand up for partners. And at the same time, a sense that the government or NHS England is prepared to walk all over partners. 
And, and that imposed contract also brought with it additional demands through PCNs, which are the vehicle uh, that a huge section of money for primary care is now being channeled through. And, and many GPs believe strongly that at a time when the profession's struggling to cope with intense demand, funding going into PCNs is simply going to the wrong place. And that, you know, more of that money uh, should be coming into practice core funding. So Lots of GPs said last year that they'd be prepared to, to pull out of PCNs. That was as part of a, an indicative ballot that the, the BMA carried out. And the, the BMA has given some hints since then that practices should think hard about, you know, whether they stay in PCNs and whether they can manage the workload and continue to deliver patient care safely. But the BMA hasn't gone as far as actually recommending that people opt out. The motions here passed by the, uh, the the BMA's GP committee show that there is a majority view within the BMA GP committee that PCNs are a direct threat to the independent contractor model of general practice. And as you say, that that's part of the contract that only a few years back the BMA signed up to and that was accepted by general practice or for general practice. And as part of the same motion that was passed at the GP committee session, the committee also confirmed its commitment to the independent contractor model. So although both points on you know concern about PCNs and the support for independent contractors have been said before by LMC conferences and within the BMA, they do leave the BMA in an awkward place. And, and that sort of fault line is likely to continue to pose difficult questions for the profession's leaders as, over the you know, months and years to, to come. It's almost like we've sort of come a bit full circle really now back to the start of the podcast really because it's it's quite interesting. We were talking about a lot of disquiet in the profession about primary care networks, but it's really clear from that fuller stock take that primary care networks are absolutely crucial to the way everyone sees integrated care systems working. You know, integrated care systems will come into effect from the 1st of July. The whole push from NHS England, from the government, is to integrate care across these footprints that are integrated care systems. And primary care networks are actually crucial to that. So uh, the fact that that's all happening at a time where the profession seems to be coming slightly more concerned about being part of a network and worried about what it actually means for them it's quite an interesting sort of clash and it will be interesting to see how the BMA negotiates this in the coming months. The other thing you also mentioned was about um, Sajid Javid and his fondness, uh, apparent fondness for a salaried service. And one of the other stories that I wrote over the last couple of weeks was um, this came up again and it actually came up again at the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee's inquiry on the future of general practice. So this is the inquiry by the committee which is chaired by former Health and Social Care Secretary Jeremy Hunt and um, this is the second concession of evidence for that. So the committee was actually hearing evidence from GPs and academics about continuity of care, which is something Jeremy Hunt's really keen on. But during that session, Dr Pauline Grant, who's a GP partner from Southampton, was asked about how to best embed continuity of care into general practice. And she said that first and foremost, the government really needed to decide what sort of service it want, meaning does it want a salaried service or does it want partnerships? Because she was saying there's just far too much uncertainty around at the minute to be able to really plan for anything. And she told MPs that Javid's backing that report that called for a salaried service was directly putting GPs off from taking up partnerships. And the current uncertainty about the future of partnerships meant that the independent contractor model was collapsing bit by bit. And she described it like a Jenga stack with holes everywhere and it was teetering on the brink of collapse. And, you know, as she quite rightly pointed out, I think, who is going to buy into a partnership when you're not sure if it's going to be around in the next 10 years? I mean, it's a it's a really fundamental question and it must be putting off lots of people from taking on the role. 
This seems like one of those, you know, it's another sort of disconnect, isn't it, in, in terms of um, the strands of policy. And we talked before about, you know, disconnect between saying people have a right to see a GP face to face and and then sort of suggesting that perhaps access could be improved by seeing, um, you know, the appropriate professional. And in this case, there's a scheme on go. It's only a few months back that we reported about the new to partnership scheme starting to have, you know, some some successes. It's, offering, it's about offering golden hellos to encourage people to come into partnerships for the first time in general practice. And that was off the back of a report commissioned by the government to maintain and revive the partnership model of general practice. And yet here we are with some evidence from a frontline GP who's struggling to uh, recruit partners into her practice, that it is literally stuff that the, the health secretary is saying that's putting people off coming into those very partnerships. So golden hellos to encourage people in on the one hand and uh, and then uh, and then threats to nationalise and scrap the whole thing on the other side. It, it would be nice if the right hand knew what the left hand was doing. Finally, we just have time for our regular good news slot. This week, it's the news that Health Education England has published a revised career framework for primary care and general practice nurses. The framework has been designed to help practices support their nurses' career progression and boost retention, as well as ensuring that integrated care systems and local health leaders understand the important role that primary care nurses can play. The RCGP has backed the framework, saying that it comes at a critical moment for the general practice workforce. The college said it was vital that primary care had the right structures and support in place for nurses' career development, which would help encourage more people into general practice nursing roles and also help to retain existing staff. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Nick. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice on gponline.com. We're back next week when I'm talking to Dr Emma Wong, who is chair of the RCGP's First Five Committee, about some of the issues facing newly qualified GPs. Do join me then. 